This is Maria McKenzie, and welcome to Provocative History, a program featuring historical fiction and fact that will make you laugh, cry, and think. Today, we'll take a look at narcissists in history and fiction. According to Psychology Today, the hallmarks of narcissistic personality disorder are grandiosity, a lack of empathy for other people, and a need for admiration. People with this condition are frequently described as arrogant, self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. They may also concentrate on grandiose fantasies, such as their own success, beauty, and brilliance, and may be convinced that they deserve special treatment. So who are some famous narcissists through history? There's a great list at learningmind.com, so I'll just discuss three of those people briefly. The first one being Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great assembled a gigantic army to realize his own ambitions. He took his faithful soldiers on endless battles, mainly for his own glory, and showed no emotion for their bloodshed. But he believed in his personal conquest and grandiose visions. Number two is Henry VIII. He was considered charismatic and handsome, but he was also cruel and egotistical. He's known by most as having had six wives, and he beheaded two of them. He's also remembered for his vain desire to have a son and heir to the throne for political reasons and vanity. Historians claim he showed no empathy and was overly concerned with his appearance. Number three is Napoleon Bonaparte. We've all heard the term Napoleon complex, and it comes from Napoleon Bonaparte's behavior. To make up for his feelings of inferiority and low self-esteem, Napoleon acted in an overly aggressive manner. Those who knew him considered him a tyrant who had grandiose thoughts and believed himself to be special. In his book entitled Thoughts, he wrote, It was precisely that evening in Lodi that I came to believe in myself as an unusual person and became consumed with the ambition to do the great things that until then had been but a fantasy. Well, that's pretty special, isn't it? Now, as horrible as narcissists are, they make really great fictional characters. So let's take a look at some bad girls in fiction. Lying, scheming, adultery, murder, multiple marriages, and extreme dislike of children are just a few things that make a bad girl really bad. Readers may not fall in love with protagonists that exhibit these negative characteristics, but at least there's never a dull moment with them. In my novel Masquerade, Bad Girl Lavinia is the star of the show. She's introduced in the first part of my Unchained Trilogy series, Escape. In that story, Lori is a slave girl and Daniel Taylor, the white man who falls in love with her and helps her to escape. Eventually, they have three children and Lavinia is their youngest. Lavinia, who passes as white, despises her sister, who is kind and good, and hates her mother for being black and a former slave. At 17, Lavinia runs off with wealthy 54-year-old Vernon Hargraves only because of what he can do for her. Although Vernon truly loves Lavinia, the feeling isn't mutual on her part. From that storyline, it's clear to see that Lavinia isn't the nicest person around. Now, what drives some bad girl protagonists to be so bad? Sometimes mental illness can play a role. If Lavinia had lived today, she probably would have been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. 
She had an inflated sense of her own importance and a deep need for admiration. She definitely thought she was superior to others and had little regard for other people's feelings. Lavinia's personality combined with her actions make for some rather interesting situations, to say the least. Lavinia joins the ranks of other bad girls in fiction, including Ellen Barrett from the 1944 novel Lever to Heaven by Ben Ames Williams. Ellen Barrett, like Lavinia, is mentally imbalanced. As well as having some unresolved father issues, Ellen is overly jealous for the attention of her husband, Richard Harland. She indirectly causes Richard's crippled younger brother to drown. And then, when she becomes pregnant, she throws herself down the stairs to cause a miscarriage. Without a baby, she won't have to share hubby's affection. Finally, when it becomes clear that Ellen's adoptive sister, Ruth, is attracted to Richard, Ellen commits suicide, making her death appear to be murder and framing Ruth for the crime. She was quite a piece of work. Now, another motivation that drives bad women is control. Let's take a look at fiery Southern belle Scarlett O'Hara from Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel, Gone with the Wind. Scarlett's sanity is intact, but she's a total control freak. Scarlett is determined to marry Ashley Wilkes, the wrong man who's already betrothed to his cousin Melanie. And after the war, she's driven to save her plantation, Tara. Scarlett marries once for spite to Charles Hamilton uh, to make Ashley jealous and twice for money uh, to Frank Kennedy, her sister's fiance, and then to the handsome rogue Rhett Butler. Scarlett eventually does fall in love with Rhett, but that's only after she's been married to him for a while. But when she realizes that she is in love with him and that life with Ashley never would have been realistic, after, even after numerous attempts to get him to dump Melanie before, during, and after her marriages, Rhett has had enough and leaves her. The need for power, status, and money drives some bad girls, like Undine Sprague, the ruthless heroine in Edith Wharton's 1913 novel, The Custom of the Country. Undine is a social climber who, through multiple marriages and divorces, experiences the pleasure of money and aristocratic titles. Eventually, she settles on marrying someone from her hometown. He's a millionaire, his money is new, and he's actually on her original social level. At this point, Undine has all the money, all that money can buy, yet she wants more. So at the end of the novel, she imagines what it would be like to be an ambassador's wife. The only thing is, this is a position that she can never hold due to her divorces. Bad girls may not endear themselves to readers, but their escapades are certain to keep the pages turning. I will end today's program by reading an excerpt from Masquerade. In this scene, Lavinia is already an established star. It's late evening, and Lavinia has prepared for bed and now sits at her vanity, brushing her hair and reminiscing about her early days in New York and the stardom that followed. Destiny had been good, Lavinia thought, while running a brush through her thick black tresses. It seemed like only yesterday that she'd arrived in New York, but so much had happened since then. She smiled, remembering how it hadn't taken her long to adjust to New York City's fast-paced, 
Living among its aggressive, obnoxious, and overcrowded inhabitants, it seemed almost intoxicating, and Vernon's opulent lifestyle was another easy adjustment. Vernon lived in a massive limestone mansion that resembled a castle. His lavish four-story dwelling was situated near West End Avenue. Although Although the decor was gaudy and extravagant, Lavinia didn't mind. Indeed, she'd made it even more gaudy with the new furniture she'd purchased. Aside from the house, what had been most exciting since her arrival in New York was her reception by the public as an actress and star. Vernon furnished her with roles that showcased her stunning beauty and extraordinary talent. From Shakespeare to modern dramas, any role she played never failed to draw a full house. After she'd appeared in her first play, the papers declared Lavinia Hargraves is a hit and a dynamic sensation that set the stage on fire with her very presence. Lavinia put down her hairbrush. She stared at herself in the looking glass while mentally reciting those quotes. She couldn't remember the exact publications, but she'd never forget the words. Hidden Splendor was the production, and she'd performed in it near the end of 1889. It was a chaste romantic drama in which Lavinia had played an island girl who falls in love with an American sailor. She'd become a star that night. There were too many good reviews, and Lavinia couldn't possibly remember them all. But one she could still quote verbatim was written by the New York Times Dramatic Mirror. Vernon received it weekly, and he'd read her the review upon its arrival. Lavinia, he'd called, listen to what Gerald Matthews wrote about you in the mirror. Who was the exotic temptress with the extraordinary range and superb acting ability starring in Vernon Hargraves' latest production, Hidden Splendor? No other than his new bride, Lavinia Hargraves. She is spectacular, beautiful, and talented. This critic waits in eager anticipation to see her next role. She is the jewel of the crown of the Hargraves players, and she is indeed the not-so-hidden splendor of this production. Now embarrassed, Lavinia recalled how at then seventeen she jumped up and down while squealing with delight, I'm great, I'm great, remembering the criticism she'd received from William Winter, the dramatic critic for the New York Tribune, Lavinia smirked. Winter condemned her and the play. She'd never been able to erase his words from her memory, yet Lavinia's smirk widened to a smile, even though he despised her. Lavinia had to admit that she'd rather liked his review. The wanton beauty alone of that Lavinia Hargraves defies the limits of common decency, he'd self-righteously declared. Her searing portrayal of an island vixen in the already salacious production of Hidden Splendor leads the audience as well as her doltish cults co-star within mere inches of hell's fiery furnace. It was said by the publisher of The Dramatic Mirror that William Winter could unearth impurity from the quotations of the stock market. However, Lavinia was convinced the man just didn't like her. His reviews were always antagonistic. Lavinia sighed. Or perhaps he loved her and was trying to woo her with negative praise. Whatever the case, it didn't matter. Regardless of what Winter said, audiences flocked to see her in droves. And from this, Lavinia had realized that there was no such thing as bad publicity. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. And please visit my website, www 
MariaMackenzieWrites.com. Read previews of my books and drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. This is Maria McKenzie, and you've been listening to Provocative History.